From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, June 18th. Favorable weather helped firefighters make gains on containment of the Pack Creek Fire yesterday. Fire managers say the blaze is now 36% contained. There's still a lot more to do, and as Information Officer Nick Howell says, the crew has now entered what they call the grind. So it sounds like firefighting crews took advantage of some cloud cover, some cooler temperatures, some good winds. The fire still remains active. Um, tell us what they were able to do yesterday in, in Geyser Pass. Yeah, so there's a lot of different things going on in Geyser Pass. Yesterday was definitely a good day for the firefighters as we are now 36% contained, which is another improvement. Yeah, so we, we are working to try to get the Geyser Pass Road itself open. We have crews in there um, today that are going to be removing all the hazard trees. There's a lot of big tall trees that have fallen down and are basically making that travel corridor impassable at this time. So that's going to take a little bit of time to remove all the wood and um, try to remove all the, the obstacles so we can access different parts of the fire. So there's also some control line construction going on. Um, what is that? Tell us about that work that the firefighters are completing. So um, on the uh, north and east side of the fire, kind of over in the Haystack Mountain area, we did have some really good favorable um, east winds yesterday. So we were able to tie our fire line into natural barriers, such as large rock screes. So it's basically like connecting one piece of the fire to another and that would eliminate you know a mile or two of a finger that you know ran um, interior in comparison to the rest of the fire's perimeter so it basically just cuts off long fingers and, and makes the work go by much quicker so when a fire burns um, it usually doesn't leave really straight lines and in this case there's a lot of embers that were you know when it made its last big run there were a lot of firebrands and embers that um, got into different parts of the fire outside of the main perimeter. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes what happens is it creates an unsafe situation, and we've got to use those natural barriers to cut those areas off so we have a nice, clean line to secure instead of looking for you know multiple or hundreds of, of spot fires out there in the green vegetation that might you know get mm-hmm. established and make a run at any time. So... The other reason we do that is because when fires burn, it leaves long fingers of vegetation, which basically um, for the crews to adequately control or contain any fire, they have to go around every piece of fire line that exists. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's easier just to cut line through those fingers and attach it to another side of the perimeter, which mm-hmm. basically el- eliminates like another mile of hand line or saw line or, or whatever. The vegetation dictates. Any anything else to mention about what happened uh, yesterday? Yesterday, there's still we did definitely look at different options for some of those steeper, more rugged canyons. There is at least you know ten percent of the fire that is still inaccessible, completely inaccessible. So oh. it's still, still trying to put the pieces together, trying to come up with a safe but inefficient plan to get some of that work done. We're still in the grind phase and. Uh, the goal, the priority still remains trying to restore some normalcy for the folks that have private property in those areas. So we're, we're just trying to create 
um, a situation where we can do that sooner than later. Yeah, mentioning the grind, today it sounds like crews will just continue working on what they're working on, um, the firing operations as you described, um, also securing a perimeter above Uwa Lake, and which is on the north, and Squaw Springs um, on the south. Um, anything else to mention about what, what crews are working on today, or maybe even into the weekend? Yeah, some of the big concern is today and tomorrow. So an updated weather forecast suggests that we could possibly have some dry lightning come through today and tomorrow. So um, we, we do have um, initial attack crews. We're, we're trying to um, identify resources in the event that we, that dry lightning materializes. We're going to have the resources to respond to that. So hopefully we're not dealing with more than just attack creek fire, but with these critical conditions in place. If we do get that dry lightning, there's a strong possibility that um, it's going to start a, a fire that's going to become active in a very short amount of time. Okay. So, yeah, yesterday um, you, you said in the press release that storms did materialize on the east side of the mountains, um, but the fire didn't receive any sort of amount of rain. Sounds like dry lightning is is going to be on the minds of, of everybody out there. Yeah, yesterday we definitely, the storm produced some higher relative humidities, which helped us as firefighters. It kept the fire behavior down, allowed us to continue pretty much what we've been working on since day one or two, where we have resources on site and we're able to actually build that fire line directly along the fire's edge. But, yeah, moving on today and tomorrow, um, there's definitely more of a concern about that dry lightning, which... Obviously, we, we don't need any more ignitions. Okay, Nick. Anything else to mention that you can think of? Well, the only other thing is um, the public tip line is still open, which will eventually lead to the identification of the individual or individuals that started this fire. So it's still open. If anybody has any information or tips that might help investigators, we definitely appreciate a phone call. Nick Howell, Fire Information Officer. That tip line number is 775-355-5337. Anyone who might have information about the start of the Pat Creek Fire is encouraged to call it as investigators are still looking for leads. The fire started Wednesday, June 9th from an abandoned campfire in a day-use area. KZMU News has the tip line number and links to more info at kzmu.org slash updates. We've been updating that page daily with any new information from Nick and Utah Fire Info. And now let's go to our weekly newsreel where we speak with reporters about their latest stories of our area. Before the Great Basin Type 2 team took over management of the Pat Creek Fire, information on the blaze was coming from many different agencies. Carter Poppy at the Times Independent started collating that information during those first few days. He showed up during the early evacuation of the Pat Creek area, too, and describes what it was like. There's a lot of, I mean, a lot of distress. Um, I think that, you know, as, as a reporter, I kind of have this bias to believing that people act more rationally when they have more information and just like that they feel better, the world, you know, feel better about yeah. understanding. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of information Wednesday and Thursday in particular, and really even Friday. So it was a lot of distress and, you know, people asking me for what I knew and I was there to ask them what they knew because I didn't really know anything. There were kind of rumors about how many homes had been lost. Zach Podmore had a good story this week about uh, Ken Slight, who helped create that Pat Creek Ranch um, 
losing some of his you know, personal records and historical documents. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of gives you an idea of the stakes that were at play. It's pretty important community for a number of people. I'm, I was appreciative of Zach for writing that too, because that was actually one of my thoughts. I knew that Ryan Savino, who helped um, curate a museum collection in Green River, had been helping Ken Slate go through some of the archives in the Quonset hut. And yeah, that's a devastating loss for Ken and for a lot of people who um, are interested in, in his work and the river running work. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard loss for Ken and for, for a lot of people. Well, Carter, you know, anything else to mention about the Times Independence coverage of the fire or what um, readers and listeners can find in, in the paper this week? Yeah, so uh, the news that we wrote about focuses on a briefing that the Great Basin Team 4 incident managers gave on Tuesday evening. The incident manager, Tim Roydy, basically talked about where the fire was most active, where they felt they had the best control of it, where they felt they were going to be seeing progress over the next few days. Um, But I think the most important information to come out of it was the very, very least be smoldering that uh, continues for the next few weeks. If you look at the growth of the fire uh, over the last two days, three days specifically, you know, you see that once it crossed 8,000 acres, uh, it, hasn't, it hasn't grown a whole lot uh, since, since then. But, you know, that doesn't preclude flare-ups and it doesn't preclude the same negligent behavior causing another fire. Well, thank you for your coverage on this. You know, the Times Independent had early updates, especially during those very confusing early days of the fire, Wednesday through Friday, pretty much before the Uh, incident management team from Great Basin kind of took over and could provide reliable communication. Um, So it's a good kind of record and collection of info of what media was learning um, from various agencies at the time. So um, I actually want to transition to another article. It's actually a series of articles. Um, We had to suspend our talks on it because KZMU News uh, took a break. Um, But I want to reemphasize this because it was a lot of work on your end, and it's an interesting topic, housing and workforce shortages. So what can you tell us about this series? Where we left off, I think, was two key statistics about Moab's housing crisis. 3,587, that's the number of dollars more per month that you have to make to own a house in Moab. If you make the median income and you want to buy the median house in Moab, you have to make basically 4,000 more per month, um, which of course is about 30,000 more a year. So that kind of gives you an idea of the vast, vast gap between how wages look in Moab and how much housing actually costs, specifically buying a home. The second statistic was a five-point decrease in multifamily unit approvals. And what this is about is while the rest of Utah from 2000 to 2019 saw about a 20% increase in the number of multifamily units that were being approved each year compared to the whole number of building permits being approved, Moab actually was approving fewer multifamily units in recent years than 
in 2000 to 2009. So we're going kind of the opposite direction of basically where we need to. Multifamily housing is not the only form of housing. It's not the only form of affordable housing. Right. But there's a clear interest in having apartments be available to people who want to live in Moab. And they're just not enough apartments. Yeah. And the ones that are built are you know, governed by the housing authority and you know, nonprofits. That basically limits who all can live there because they are limited to people of a certain income. That story was basically just to give people an idea of where Moab is exactly on some of these key housing figures, specifically affordability and the housing types we have available. Looking at this, the past several years, you know, we have Arroyo Crossing, which will eventually have an apartment building on the project site. There's the Walnut Lane apartments coming in. You know, like you said, Arroyo Crossing, um, the land trust, the Moabary Community Land Trust sort of governs that property. Walnut Lane, it's Moab City. But I, I can't think of any commercial development that is just uh, bringing apartments to town. Yeah, I, I think that is not by mistake. I, I think that the city of Moab and Grant County have set up their land use regulations in such a way to kind of prevent that from happening for the most part. Mm-hmm. They're very apt to work with the housing authority and with nonprofits like the land trust to make multifamily housing happen, but they don't have the same approach to for-profit home builders. The essential thing is nonprofits can't build all the housing you need in the Valley, according to officials. That's not me speaking. That's elected officials speaking. Right. But that's kind of what's happening right now, at least in multifamily housing. Yeah, you know, I really like the approach of kind of digging into the zoning code. Um, I know the county has made gains um, by drafting the high density housing overlay ordinance, which does provide increased areas where multifamily housing could be developed. Um, the city, you know, they've tried to increase density through their planned affordable development ordinance, but like you've reported, no one has taken advantage of that. Um, the city's own project is kind of the experimental first one, which is the Walnut Lane uh, apartments. So, so yeah, looking at zoning and the barriers to creating what's known as like infill development or multifamily development is uh, really interesting. Well, I, I mean, based on this series, uh, what we learned from it, I think that it's definitely fair to say that the county has done more to bolster multifamily housing than the city has, which is uh, pretty concerning because you don't want to build housing necessarily outward. There are suburbs all around the country and there's nothing inherently wrong with a suburb, Mm -hmm. but planners will tell you vociferously that the best place to build housing is where the services are available. And in particular, around where other developments already are. And that means centralizing them in urban centers. And the city just has not 
done that in recent years. Are there other things that you learned through writing it, you and Sophia Fisher? Any other thing that you wanted to mention about it? Yeah, so many lessons. Two weeks ago, the thing that we reported on was a paper from 2020, released by the University of Utah, assessing best practices for promoting housing affordability. And we took that paper and we compared it against Moab's land use regulations and Grand County's land use regulations. And the holes are basically what I've kind of already described. It's in the land use code itself. There are all these kind of more marginal things that you can do to promote Mm -hmm. housing affordability. That looks like community reinvestment agencies, which are kind of a an investment strategy taken on by public entities that come together and agree on a kind of a project that they want to get done. They'll kind of reallocate taxes to make the project happen. And then there's also accessory dwelling units, which are somewhat of a, somewhat of a hot topic. But these are sort of marginal things, especially compared to changing the zoning itself. And that's where we really found the city in particular has been lacking in recent years, lacking in terms of making needed change happen and lacking in terms of the rules that are on the books and how they compare to our current situation. Last week's issue digs into that, that zoning piece of it, as well as the others to kind of show where the opportunities for growth are in the city and and, in the county as well. And then this week, I think, you know, we, we, we really picked a very useful way of, of finishing the series up. And it's a bit softer. We're not looking at particular policies per se, but we did talk to four elected officials, the, the mayor, Tani Knudsen-Boyd from the city council, Gabe Wojtek from the county commission, and Mary McGann, who's the chair of the county commission. The conversations we had with them led us to the story that we wrote this week, which is basically about a lack of leadership on the housing issue in Moab. Again, that's not according to us, that's according to Emily Niehaus, Tanya Knutson-Boyd. It's especially a thing with the city, which uh, also happens to have an election this year, so. It feels like, you know, over the past five or so years, it feels like the housing issue has been coming to a head, but I feel like lately more than ever. Um, well, that is definitely by our our design. You know, it's it's something yeah. that we've I've seen particularly since moving to Moab. You know, the, the Times Independent was covering it well before I got here. Go read all the, the news articles. They are all except one now free on MoabTimes.com. Just look up housing. You're going to get to see them. Yeah, I mean, we're also looking for feedback as well. We want to hear what people think about you know, this series and, and these things, if, if people like it, well, you know, we want to hear that. If people don't like it, we'll adjust our coverage accordingly. But trying to get a conversation started when we want people to engage us on it. Carter Poppy, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more coverage can be found at moabtimes.com. In a week where the Pat Creek Fire is the story, there's a lot of discussion on how local media can and should cover it. We speak to Maggie McGuire about the Moab Sun News' approach. 
this fire is a giant deal to our community. You know, it's visible from town. This is the place that, you know, everyone goes during the summer. There's like a lot of emotions and there's a lot of like technical information and a lot of safety information. So this is a story that kind of cuts across a lot of areas that that all local newspapers and media outlets cover. Definitely people who work at newspapers, but also I feel like the average person, like there's a fire story, right? There's a photo of a mm-hmm. fireman with, uh, you know, someone who's, whose house just got burned and, you know, they're going through the, the, the ashes, you know, and it's very compelling, but at the sun, we are a small organization and, you know, to, to continually jump to those kind of stories, I think is sort of to ignore the fact that the internet exists. There are wonderful public information officers who, who work on these fires um, and are able to get really, really accurate and interesting information out through their own social media channels. So they no longer need us to sort of like mediate that or, or communicate that. And honestly, you know, as someone who wants people to have good information, period, you know, that's awesome. But it does leave us as a a news outlet sort of wondering, okay, well, what's our role? Do we just republish, (laughs) you know, Um, do we try to be breaking news even when realistically, you know, that's no longer, I think, something that a lot of people need from us. So what we sort of decided in-house, and this is, you know, I'm sure something that we've talked about a bunch, Molly, and, and something that, you know, we've tried to convey to our readers is that where we really see the strongest place that we can help our community and help our readers um, is in telling sort of those those longer and deeper stories that, um, you know, <laughs> obviously the public information officers aren't going to tell you. Um, and a lot of times, you know, sort of that state-level um, news organizations aren't going to be able to to dig into those stories either. Um, so that's something that we're really trying to focus on. And then through our social media channels, we're really trying to work um, with these public information officers and like these sort of official channels to quickly get that information to our readers. Um, so I would say, you know, online we're viewing ourselves as a conduit, you know, between our readers and updated, accurate, um, and credible sources of information. It is a continual conversation and it is a continual um, decision-making process with me about like, okay, what is the best way for us to handle this information, you know, with the capacity that we do? You know, we have two um, staff writers right now. We have a bunch of freelancers, but, you know, I think that being thoughtful about where we're putting our efforts results in a better product and a deeper story for, for our readers. So tell us, you know, tell us how that showed up this week for the Mobs and News, contextualizing this information in different ways. Mm-hmm. So how did it, how did it show up this week? One of the things that we saw popping up on social media a lot was this like very hopeful message of like, well, I hope that they put it out by the weekend. Yeah. Which that's not a bad thing. We all do hope that. But, you know, one of the things that Rachel Fixon and I thought was like a really important thing to highlight in our coverage was was, you know, what the actual like fire authorities estimates of of how long that this would take, you know, um, that that's 
I mean, just kind of crucial information for, <laughs> for, for folks going forward. And that's something that sort of those day-to-day updates, you don't often get at that. You know, when you're looking at the day-to-day updates, you're like, it's 18% contained and now it's 22. That's awesome. But, you know, I think that, you know, for folks who are living in town and trying to like plan their summer or like I say, even just sort of wrap their heads around what this means to folks living here, you know, having an actual estimate that, you know, this is expected to burn for weeks, I think is really important just to even be able to like kind of go forward and have that conversation about wildfire management and, you know, what does this mean, you know, also to the outdoor recreation industry here in town, which it will have an impact on that. You know, what does it mean just sort of like emotionally, frankly, what does it mean to interagency wildfire management? And that's definitely one that that when we were looking at the feedback we were getting from readers, um, we really quickly thought like, oh, okay, well, we need to get a little bit more accurate information that this isn't the same as fighting a house fire. You know, one of the things that I'd like to point out in the latest edition of the Mob Sun News um, you know, Rachel Fixon interviewed someone who was there in the early mm-hmm. days of the Pack Creek Fire, which I thought was really helpful to kind of gain a, uh, an understanding of what that might be like from a like first person perspective. Yeah, I'm really happy that we could do that because I think we do tend to talk about like fire officials and firefighters in like this very like generic <laughs> way, you know, um, there are over 500 fire personnel um, fighting this particular fire on our mountain. That's a huge amount of people. A lot of people in Moab, you know, know people that work in in wilderness fire management or, you know, in a tangential field. And so I do think that it's it's really awesome that we have a lot of people that that understand that world really deeply. And, you know, we're grateful at the newspaper because that's the expertise that we can draw upon. Kind of difficult to get at this moment. So it's cool. Yeah. That- it's cool that Jason Kirks um, took time to talk to Rachel about it because things are moving really fast um, right yeah. now. I think it's important to to make clear that, you know, people in the Pat Creek area, you know, some people lost their houses, people lost structures, you know, that area, you know, is, is, is very changed. Um, and with, with wildfires like this, you know, it's also just um, a sense of safety that gets violated. And so often I see in coverage of, of wildfires, you know, you're really talking about um, those homeowners um, and sort of the emotional impact on them, which is like super important. And I'm really grateful that, you know, the Moab community has been, um, and I will say also the the San Juan County um, emergency management folks have been really good about, about supporting those people who have had to evacuate. Um, but including, like you say, um, the, the firsthand perspective of, of fire personnel, I think is incredibly important to include within that perspective because what you don't can't have one without the other. Well, Maggie, do you want to mention anything else from the sun's coverage today? I know there are other articles that don't necessarily relate to the fire, anything at all. Just that I really do encourage people to reach out not only to us, but to other, you know, media outlets and writers. You know, something that I say all the time to people, um, I think that sort of folks assume that writers and media outlets get all kinds of feedback. And often we don't. So, (laughs) So a letter to the editor or a quick email or a Facebook post 
you know, asking like, Hey, I, you know, need this information. I would really like, you know, to have more of that in the paper. I think people would be surprised at how much um, weight that carries. For folks who are here, who live here, who are visiting here, um, you know, the fire is the story. I mean, the fire is incredibly important for this area. And there's going to be so many stories that come out of that um, with a ton of interesting information on how this fire and fires like it are likely to impact sort of the lives and livelihoods of people in Grand County and Moab and Southern Utah, you know, et cetera. But while this is very visible, I can, you know, see this from my window. It's also really important to make sure that we're maintaining coverage of all of these ongoing issues that also are impacting this region. You know, and that includes, you know, the ongoing debate over the monuments that also includes, um, you know, redistricting in Grand County, which is going to, of course, impact sort of the political landscape here, you know, and things of that nature. So again, you know, when we're thinking about our coverage, it's really important for us to to make sure that we're we're covering all of those bases and not quite getting getting totally swept away. Maggie McGuire, publisher and editor at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more coverage can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we speak with newspaper reporters and editors about the most recent stories they've covered in our area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.